0: World that was open to gender, was open to race, was open, you know, it was open and it was going to be a better world.
1: Welcome back to Diversity on Fire. This is your host, Heather. Diversity on Fire is on a mission to inspire new thoughts and dialogue by sharing our open conversations on all types of diversity-related topics. Joining me today is John Melrod. John is the author of Fighting Times, Organizing on the Front Lines of the Class War. He's also a lawyer, activist, survivor, and advocate for the unheard. Welcome to the show, John.
0: Thank you very much. I really appreciate being on the show. Definitely today it's International Women's Day, and I want to give a shout-out if this is the appropriate place to the history of what this is all about.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. You just shared that, but we weren't recording. So yes, feel free. I'd love for you to share that again.
0: Well, I think it's really important because it's great that it's become women's international women's history month, but I think in a way that diluted what the original day was about. And on March 8th, 1908, women workers in the needle trades marched through New York City's Lower East Side to protest child labor, sweatshop working conditions, and demand women's suffrage. Beginning in 1910, March 8th became annually celebrated at International Women's Day. So it was a very specific fight that women were carrying on and spearheading in the needle trades, in the union movement. And as I just read this to you, I said to myself, wow, I've just been reading articles about child labor again in the New York Times. Sweatshop working conditions are like Amazon warehouses. And women's suffrage, they're taking away suffrage of people of color right now, their vote. So in some ways, we've got to... We've got to preserve what we started in 1908,
1: right? It, that's it's it is a sad uh, truth that we are certainly circling back in a lot of ways. So, yeah, I appreciate that uh, that you're sharing that. So, there's a couple questions that I kind of start with always for all guests. One is to ask you um, your thoughts on a specific term related to diversity. So, I would like to know what to you what the term. Equity means in terms of human equity, not property equity, but human equity. how does it what does it mean to you, and how have you seen it affect you or those around you?
0: Well, that's really an apropos question because my my this is just a specific example, and then we'll go into the larger question. But my sons run a well, they've now built up three independent dispensaries, cannabis dispensaries. And they're based on a very discreet set of principles, only sun-grown, you know, only done where there's organic or better yet um, biodiversity. Um, and so, you know, we call it mud shoe. You know, our people go up to the farmers, the small farmers in Mendocino and Humboldt who were really working with to keep their farms alive. But our store in San Francisco that we just opened could only be opened if we had an equity partner. And that's an interesting program. It was an attempt by the city to, in a a good way, make sure that the opportunities existed for people who had been squeezed out of the small business world, people of color and women, okay? So this program was set up. But the way all things seem to happen in this country, the big entrepreneurs and venture capitalists got a hold of that and they started paying a front person to be their equity person. What we've done is my son was just telling me this yesterday. It's coincidental. They have an equity partner and they have really used the the position to train her how to run a business, how to be a flower buyer of good cannabis, you know, how to, Learn the business from top to bottom so she's really benefited from the skills of being an equity partner. It's not a phony setup where we put a person of color or a woman out there as our face. But, you know, the, so this is what equity means. Equity means providing opportunity, benefits to people who've been denied those opportunities, And it it can go back to when I was in college in Madison and we struck for a couple of weeks for black student studies, ethnic studies, and for the admission of more black students. And at the largest point, we had 10,000 people march on the state capitol at night, 98% of them white, supporting black students' ethnic studies and the admissions of more Black students. Now, I, I I live in fear of the day-to-day news from Florida. What new right can they take away today? So that this wasn't always the state of affairs, and but it took a lot of education. Before that Black student strike, we spent weeks going into the dormitories, educating students as to why this was important, why blacks have been historically denied higher education and have been restricted from joining in in Wisconsin, a very, at least at that time, a very good state university system. So I think equity has a lot of different meanings, but in the general context, it means fighting to provide the opportunity for people who've been denied it because of color or gender Or in this case, now it becomes transgender folks, queer folks. You know, it's expanded the definition. But I think it's an essential principle that white people do our job in upholding. That I mean, most of my life, to be honest with you, since I was a kid growing up in Washington, D.C. in the 50s, which was like living in the apartheid south the divisions between black and whites. And I became active in the civil rights movement when I was only a 15-year-old kid. I started working at the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, one of the large civil rights organizations that was a little younger and a little bit more militant. And we were active because they had just killed three civil rights workers, two white and one black, had been registering voters in the South. And in 64, the police arrested three of these re- registers of voters, civil rights workers, and jailed them. Then they released them out the back door to the Klan. Their name, the three names were Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodwin. And the Klan took them to a bog and killed them. And even years later, when there was a confession from one of those Klansmen, they didn't convict him in the South. So it's just shocking. And then years later, when I was working in in a large automobile factory, we made it really one of our centerpieces of our caucuses program. There were two prongs. One was fighting misogyny and the discrimination of women, both in the factory and by the union. And the other was fighting white chauvinism and racist discrimination of people of color who were being denied equal treatment and fair treatment by the union and the company. And that became the two prongs that we never left behind. And I'm gonna hold up this picture to show you because someone sent it to me the other day. And it was from that March, we went to Tupelo, Mississippi in 1978. And when you look at these guys with these long guns, I didn't even remember because I was a young person, how scary it really was marching against the Klan. And I have a picture in my book, which I'd like to imper- encourage people to get if they go to my website, JonathanBelrod.com. We put it on sale by 40% because of all these podcasts like yours that have so been so great in putting me on where we show the police station, Tupelo police station, and out of marching 25 white hooded Klan's members who were the police. So I said to myself, this is the first time I experienced it, going south of the Mason-Dixon line. I said to myself, who do you call when you get attacked by these anti-protesters who are carrying weapons? You call the police and say, help, I need help. And they say, well, we're the Klan. You know, and this is what Black people had to live with day in and day out in the South in those days.
1: It's both incredibly hard to uh, imagine and also not so much because we're getting tastes of things coming back around. Before we get too far into that, though, I do want to reverse a little bit. I like to kind of start out by getting a little bit of your origin story. So we're going to take it way back, John. You are growing up. Tell us about your your family, because you just told us that you got involved in this movement or or just in general involved in the necessity to fight for human rights early on. Right. So where did that come from? What does your family look like? Religious background, things like that.
0: You know, my politics didn't really come from my family. You know, they were they were what you would have called good Jewish democratic liberals Mm -hmm. back then, but it was nothing outside of the center left mainstream. But growing up in DC, there were so many in your face examples of the mistreatment and second class citizenship of black people who were close at that point to being the majority of the city and now are. And I can remember so well as a kid taking the bus, and in the Northwest quadrant where I lived, Northwest DC, the buses all had air conditioning, and it was 100 degrees outside. You got outside of the Northwest quadrant, there wasn't a single air conditioned bus in the black neighborhoods. Then at 10, we used to go to the amusement park, Glen Echo in Maryland. And in 1960, when I was 10, students from Howard University, the black university in D.C., picketed Glen Echo to integrate it. Now, as a kid, I hadn't realized there weren't black kids. But as soon as the issue came up, I said, yeah, why not? We're all kids. You know, kids don't have that prejudice yet until it's beaten into their heads by society and often parents. And... The white racists in the area came out in force. To them, it was the worst thing they could imagine. Their kids having to share merry-go-rounds and swimming pools with black kids. And there was quite a bit of violence where they attacked the Howard University students. And in the end, the white racists threw bleach into the pool. So none of us could go swimming and the whole Glen Echo shut down. Well, to me, I'll never forget thinking, who is it that cares if Black kids share the pool with us when it's 105 degrees out in D.C.? And it was these kind of events. See, when we went on a driving trip, you know, in the old days, well, you're way too young, but, you know, when your parents first got a car and they had a Chevrolet Impala four-door and we'd go out to the countryside to just drive through Virginia, And there would be black chain gangs chained together at the ankles doing work on the side of the roads with these big, big white guards on horses with long guns. And it was like, what, what, you know, what is this? It's just a scene out of purgatory. I mean, and I think it was those experiences that really instilled in me an understanding that racism really hurt other people all around me and that I felt like I had a need to do something about it. So when I read about these young civil rights workers who were only a couple of years older than me being killed by the Klan, much to my parents' surprise, I said, I'm going to work at the SNCC office, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee's office. And I used to take three buses Of course, one was air-conditioned in the Northwest side. Then when I transferred to go into the Black community, they weren't. And I would take a bus every day to the SNCC office, and we sent out thousands of letters educating people into the murders by the Klan of these three civil rights workers and raising money for the civil rights movement. And I did that for the summer in 1965. I was still a high school student, so I had to go to school. But... That instilled in me this lesson, because that was the time when Stokely Carmichael was active, HRAP Brown, early leaders of the civil rights movement. And they would come through our office and talk to us. And young Black organizers from the South would need to take a break and would come up and they would sleep in the the office and tell us stories of going out to register Blacks to vote and how you know dangerous it was and how frightened people were so that really left me with this goal of i'm going to do something about this in my lifetime and of course i thought we were on a much better track until you know the murders of george floyd etc started happening and you know there was a backlash you know blue line blue lives matter that was just a denial of the fact that this goes on
1: this is where we were talking earlier about how it's it we're taking some some backward swings in my opinion it's really got to be fear based the only thing i can think is fear based right I, and that's that's kind of my opinion but i'm i'm curious to to your opinion counterculture right counterculture something different somebody that's not the same as you Why do you think or what have you seen in your experience as to why that scares people so much? Is it power control?
0: Yeah, I really think that I can go to point to examples of it where it's, you know, takes place among working, working class and poor white people who feel that the few privileges they've been doled out will be taken away, that that's what immigrants and blacks want. And it's such a crazy thought because so many of the jobs, if you're out here in California and you go into any restaurant, the back kitchen is entirely, you know, Latino men and women in this area working, you know, really slaving 10 hours a day over the hot dishes, you know, just to make a very paltry wage in our minds. But they're the ones who are willing to do those jobs. And it's those are the jobs they're taking. I haven't heard of them taking any jobs for away from white workers in factories. You know, I mean, they're trying to get jobs in factories, but it's not to replace white people. It's to just be on the same level. So it's really unfortunate when this fear based anger like a Glen Echo boils over and creates these really horrible incidents. And I'll give you one other example from my youth, because we've talked about my youth. And this was probably the one that had the most impact on me. My father took me to the high school football championship in D.C. And I can't remember the exact date. I have it in the book. But it, it it was obviously in the early 60s. And the teams that were lined up were a black public school team that was the top school in terms of the football team at that school, and then a white Catholic school. And it was like creating the ingredients for something bad to happen. And in the fourth quarter, the referee, an altercation happened between players, like you see all the time, some pushing, some shoving. The referee threw out the black player, expelled him from the game. And he was a very important player to the black team. And nothing happened to the white player. Well, you could feel the tension in the stadium. It was 50,000 people. The black fans were on one side, the white fans were on the other side. And the temperature just started rising because the white team then prevailed because the black team had lost their best player. And my father said, we better leave. I I don't think there's good things going to happen. And as we were in the parking lot, all hell broke loose. Bottles were thrown. I can't remember if it was Molotov cocktails, but it went on. We luckily got out just as bottles were flying, but a, a really bad racial... War broke out, and that was the end of the high school football games. I don't think they've ever restored them to the city. It was, you know, white people who unfortunately felt that this was a challenge to their educational system, to their athletic system, you know, that black players, black schools were doing so well that they could compete. And the reaction was unfortunately one of violence. Rather than it being, you know, an athletic challenge, it became a racial challenge. Um, and I think that's the origin of a lot of these things that are still with us. And you had talked about us doing another show in the future, because I want to show where that can be overcome. In the factory, we were able to overcome those racial divides. But it took an understanding of how the racial divisions are hurting us before we could get people to join together. So let's make sure we put a pin in that and talk about that later on.
1: A hundred percent. Yes. Speaking of the factory, because I think, I don't remember if it was when you were, it was college or if it was the factory, but you got on the FBI's watch list and To to be honest, of course, I don't know the entire story, but what I do know of it seems totally ridiculous. Like, I think most people, if they heard it, they'd say, what? You did what? And they did what? Yeah. So can you share that with us? So what the heck happened?
0: Well, that's a perfect question that dovetails with this issue of, um, you know, the fear that white people have. And in this case, it was the federal government the FBI. And I don't know if you're familiar with, but a lot of people may have seen the recent movie on Sherman Fred Hampton in Chicago, who was the leader of the Black Panther Party. The movie, God, I've forgotten the name of the movie, but the FBI decided that they were going to get rid of him because he was a Panther who believed in the unity of all people. He formed the first rainbow coalition in Chicago that included the Puerto Rican Young Lords, the Brown Berets, which were Chicanos, that included the Young Patriots who were white, young, poor whites from the South, that all lived in these neighborhoods in Chicago. And Chairman Fred Hampton pulled them all together into a coalition. So he was dangerous for the system. And they set out to kill him. They put an informant into the Panther Party in Chicago. He drew a map of Chairman Fred Hampton's house. And at night, they drugged him and then came in and assassinated him. Well, we had been, Chairman Fred Hampton had spoke two times on the campus at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I went to school. And he really knew how to penetrate our minds. He basically said when he finished, those of us who were just kind of radicals, he challenged us to be revolutionaries, to remake the system in a more equitable, fair, non-exploitative way. So I volunteered to be in charge of selling the Black Panther paper in Madison, mostly to white students. And we used to sell about 350 a week at a quarter each. And we had a whole squad of people that would go out every week to sell it. And that's what landed me on the radars of the radar of the FBI. They had put a phone tap. I don't know if it was on my phone or the Panther office in Chicago, but that first memo says, be aware of Jonathan Melrod. He's been in contact with the Chicago office of the Black Panther Party. Investigate him to see if he's associated with black nationalist activists. And that was the first memorandum of what turned out to be about a thousand page FBI file that I finally, after three appeals, got it out of the FBI. And I think a lot of people are going to say, is this guy telling us the truth? So on my website, we posted hundreds of pages of the FBI file of them following me to work and getting me fired from factory jobs where I was organizing, of them stopping in front of my house where I lived on, was it 27th Street in a mixed black and white neighborhood and writing down the, the license plates of everybody on the street to see if they were coming to meetings at my house. You know, they'd stop me on the street and harass me trying to say, hey, we're the FBI. We know who you are. Basically a scare tactic. And of course, I had been active with the Black Panther Party in Milwaukee when I left Madison and moved to Milwaukee. And even in Madison, I was active with the Milwaukee chapter because the police had arrested three Panthers on completely trumped up charges that they had shot and killed a police officer. Well, they hadn't done it, and the Milwaukee tactical squad was known for being just terribly racist, of driving through the Black neighborhoods with shotguns out the window to just scare people, to say, we're here, we want you to know we're here, and they had long guns out the windows, traveling four cops to a car to scare the Black community. Um, and one of, in this early incident with the Milwaukee Three, we did everything we could to support them, but they were found guilty and had to go, you know, to do 15, 20 years of prison time for something that they weren't responsible for. But because they had been in the Panther Party that was feeding children in Milwaukee, that had LaVetta X, or she wasn't a doctor then, but she became a doctor who had set up the free clinics for black people who weren't being treated for sickle cell anemia, a particular disease that's in the black community. So they were testing for that and they were arranging buses to take families up to visit prisoners in state prison because it was a typical behavior of the prison system to put blacks far away from their families in Milwaukee, like up in green Bay So families couldn't afford to get there, so they didn't. They really wanted to put a stop to the Panther Party in Milwaukee for doing for launching these survival programs, and to do that, they set up these three Panthers on murder charges and and sent them away. And you know that's scary. If you want to be an activist, you don't want to spend ten to fifteen years in jail on fake charges. So when we'd have a meeting at my house. They would come, they'd write down the license plates and they would they would list who was an activist. Now they were blacked out. You couldn't read the names, but there'd be a list of 25 cars with the names redacted, blacked out of activists who were meeting to take up these these issues.
1: Yeah, and I just, as in very clear, very stark contrast to a story that you shared earlier and the picture that you held up, that the kkk was a part of so the kkk can exist and they don't need the fbi following them but the black and i'm and i'm just i'm kind of relating here and then the black panthers somehow so it's just wild to me it's comes to mind currently and i'm interested in your thoughts on this I'm sure this has always been a thing, right? Freedom, freedom rings true. The United States is a free place, right? And that's something that we have to fight for. And there's all this rhetoric rhetoric around that. But the truth is, you're only free if you believe and act the way that the people in power want you to, or that suits their need or their agenda. Have you seen progress in your years to where we are now? Or do you feel like we're really in a wash and repeat cycle? (laughs)
0: That's that's an interesting term. I'm going to borrow that from you in the future. Um, Sure. But, uh, you know, what's so disappointing to me, and it's a way to answer your question, is back in the late 60s and early 70s, I thought for sure the world was ours to change. You know, it just seemed like things were moving forward. Dr. King had led his march on D.C., Malcolm X had been active until they assassinated him. You know, young people <clears throat> were going to Woodstock together. You know, we we shared a youthful vision of the changes that could happen in this country. And so, you know, we all we wore bell bottoms and had long hair and it was our form of rebellion. But with it went this very bonded community of young people and When I got to Madison for college, in the first year, there was the Black student strike, which I've mentioned to you. But there was also this street party in the student neighborhood. Mifflin Bassett was known as the student neighborhood in Madison. And not such political, but somewhat political kids had called for a mass block party with all the bands from the 60s playing Grateful Dead music and Paul Butterfield and, you know, the Grateful, you know, the, uh, you know, Janis Joplin. And it was basically a party to to show we were against the Vietnam War and those type of things, but it was more to bond people together. And, you know, hippies were out there in tie-dye, dancing in circles in the street. And music was blaring from kids' houses with speakers. And it was just a good time. And sometime in the afternoon, all of a sudden, squad cars arrive in a line and they pull up in the middle of the block. They get out of the squad car and they say, This is an illegal assembly. We order that it be dispersed. Well, everybody thought, This can't, they're not really going to do anything. I mean, What are we doing? We're just dancing and, you know, listening to music and some kids are smoking pot. But the cultural war existed back then because they gave us about two or three notices. And then they just came through swinging their billy clubs and driving their cars through at high speeds. And kids started to fight back to throw rocks at the cop cars to build barricades in the street of trash cans. And cops were throwing tear gas across at us. And it turned into three nights of rioting that wasn't just radical students. There were contingents from Fraternity Row. There were contingents from the ag campus, from the engineering campus. The Christian, Christian students for free rights put out a leaflet saying how to protect yourself against tear gas. And it was just a wake up shock for students to feel that our lifestyle was under attack, our beliefs were under attack. So, you know, this, this is, goes back even then, but, but the difference was that there were more students and more people who believed in this alternative world You know, on the corner was the Mifflin Street Co-op where, you know, students ran it and we went there to buy our groceries and we felt like we were creating this new open world that was open to gender, was open to race, was open, you know, it was open and it was going to be a better world. Well, lo and behold, that's what motivated me to go into a factory to organize but over time, there's been an erosion. And, you know, during the Trump administration, those people who had the, held those beliefs, white supremacist beliefs, anti-women beliefs, anti-Muslim beliefs, have now feel empowered and comfortable publicly expressing those and publicly saying it's a good thing when Trump says, "Let's stop all Muslims from coming into the country. You know And that's an okay thing to say. And it's just to me, it's just it's just such a dismal setback to the beliefs that we held and we thought were beginning to prevail. And I'm still active, I still believe in the same things I believed in, and I still believe that through shows like yours, We can appeal to people. One of the first podcasts I did was called um, The Federalist Society. And the guy told me before the podcast, I'm a Republican, I'm a conservative, but I want to give you a fair hearing. And we talked for an hour. And at the end of it, honest to God, he held up my book, Fighting Times, and he said, I don't agree with everything in this. But I recommend my viewers get it because it will open their minds to a point of view that we don't normally hear in our bubble, in the Fox bubble, you know. And I'd like people who are your listeners to go on my website, because as you say, it's kind of unbelievable that the FBI went to this extent. And I've put up about three or four hundred pages of FBI memos. It's on Jonathan Melrod. Dot com on the website where they can read the, these memos themselves and share my shock and disbelief when I finally got them all turned over that they were, in fact, trailing me, you know, on a daily basis. And it's like, don't you have something better to do? Don't you have a better way to spend your money? Um, because I know what I believed in. And I know that it was for for the better good. And I think if you read, people read my book, they will agree with that. But nevertheless, there's these forces at work in society that we have to fight with that are still powerful enough to impact the, the public discourse. Even when they get exposed at Fox for knowing they're publishing lies about the election, they still keep doing it. They have no shame.
1: It's the piece to what you just said that startles me the most is the willingness. And and I'm I'm going to actually say that that I believe this is a bipartisan thing to say because I do I personally believe it happens more on one side than the other, but I think that it can happen on both that when we are presented with clear evidence there is A really strange thing that happens that people are able to just straight up deny it or create some sort of narrative to say why that doesn't matter and that allows them to keep their same bigoted belief system. It's very strange to me. Uh, I do want to say that I'm. I'm really happy that you shared that story about the f- first podcast you went on. I am a strong believer in that we don't have to agree at, to be friends. I don't think we have. I don't personally think we've gotten very attached to. And I, perhaps we've always been attached to these. I'm. I'm this, and I'm that. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm a Tea Part. Whatever label people feel the need to apply. That might be part of the problem, though. Because you're tying yourself to this label so much that it becomes an identity. And if it becomes an identity, you you feel like you have to fight for that no yeah. matter what. Yeah. Outside of any logic, outside of any humanity. And it's really very destructive. Very destructive. So the last question I want to ask you, well, I have three final questions, but to, but to kind of button it up and then leave a, a little bit of a cliffhanger on your solutions for next time we talk how have you seen and i'm specifically talking about the working class because i am in agreement that the working class is a very powerful unit of people how have you seen the working class's thought process or change or not change over the years
0: well yeah i don't want to take away from our next show <laughs> by stealing some of the both, some of the best examples but i will say this which is I was really discouraged when the incident occurred in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where the police shot, I can't remember his name. He was a a black guy who was in his car. And I think they, God, I just can't remember his name. But then people came into town like Kyle Rittenhouse, that very young kid who wasn't even old enough, I think. I don't think he was 18. His mother had bought him a uh, AR-15. And he just thought that these were all enemies that he could shoot. And when I was in Kenosha for many, many years working at the American Motors factory, I believe if we had been there with the strong union we had, with its very diverse membership of women, Blacks, Latinos, that that kind of thing wouldn't have been able to happen. I believe that we would have gone out as a union and marched and not allowed that kind of crazy backlash to occur where you have these young kids, and then they made him into a hero after that. He was, I think, at CPAC, and they were cheering for him, And it was just this kid can't even drink a beer legally, yet you're cheering for him for having murdered some people at a demonstration. So, you know, I I think that's a change. And I think partially what happened is that working class people in a state like Wisconsin, where we used to have a lot of really decent union jobs in auto, in steel, where there was a much stronger identity of togetherness, those factories are all gone. Those unions no longer have the influence that they once had. And I think that's led in part to allow this other sort of Trumpian MAGA America to thrive because we haven't done a good enough job in showing them why MAGA doesn't do them any good in the long run, whereas someone like Bernie would have done. I mean, Medicare for all, come on. It's a no-brainer. I have Medicare. It's a great system. Some people say it's a socialist system. So be it, you know? I mean, if it's run well and it's a government program, I support it. And that we don't have a large enough poll at this point on our side of the equation to fight for these things that we know are right and that we know are wrong? Um, I hope that answered the first question.
1: It does. It's a good example. And I think it's a good place to wrap up this portion of the conversation because I I do think there's so much more to all of this, and I really would love to hear some of your solution-oriented thoughts. The last three questions that I always ask everyone, one of them actually is an action item. Um, So I ask the guest to share something with everyone listening, something small that we can do today. Something that, again, small because we want to be able to just take action, to become more politically aware. And I want to just kind of crystallize this, not for you, but for anyone listening. What I mean by politically aware is know what your vote means, where it should go for your personal objectives, and also what's going on, who's in control. So that's kind of a lot. But what what can people do today to get more politically aware?
0: Well, I mean, I think one thing is, on the local level, I think people can have a big influence over local politics. You know, I know my son was very active in supporting a city council member in San Francisco who was a member of Democratic Socialist uh, America. And, you know, he was really out there championing very progressive things that would help everybody. Rent control in San Francisco. I mean, my God, a two bedroom house is now over five thousand dollars. So kids have to have, you know, kids sharing rooms. I mean, young people, not kids. I'm now getting older, but, (laughs) um, but, you know, they all share, you know, multiple rooms, you know. I mean, just something like a rent control bill, you know, that comes from the bottom up from tenants, you know, is important. And there's so many things like that all over the country, you know. I mean, I don't really care what you do if you're doing something to make the world a better place. You know, that's what my father told me on his dying bed, actually. He says, Johnny, you know, I'm leaving, but I hope I've left making the world a little bit better and I hope you do the same. So that's really what I can mostly say to people.
1: Okay, I like it. In your current phase of life, what are five words, just words, that you would use to describe yourself?
0: Ethical, moral, inspired, dedicated to making change, and dedicating to treat all people equally and fairly.
1: Well, those are perfect words for this show. So that <laughs> so that works out well. Exactly. Um, and then to stay in touch with you, um, I know you mentioned jonathanmelrod.com as your website. Is there anywhere else? Do you have social media, LinkedIn, yes, yes, anywhere else that you want people to go?
0: Yeah, I've learned how to do social media, even though okay. I'm 72. My web, my Facebook page is Jonathan Melrod. And there's also a Facebook page for Fighting Times Book Um, on Instagram at Jonathan Melrod, Twitter at Jonathan Melrod. But I would really recommend people go to my Facebook page, Jonathan Melrod, because we're very active. I have some young people who are helping me. There's a tremendous wealth of information. Today, we put up a posting about International Women's Day and Mother Jones, who was a, you know, going back to the turn of the century, a tremendous woman and fighter for minors and for women. You know, she's famous for when women were on strike in New England, in the the clothing manufacturers, for taking a trainload of their children to New York you know, to t- have them being taken care of during the strike. So there's there's all kinds of learning information. Um, you know, I, I had written something for Black History Month on a guy whose last name was Fagan, who was a black Buffalo soldier at the turn of the century who was sent to the Philippines to suppress the Philippines independence movement when the very beginning of U.S. imperialism, they wanted to run the Philippines. And he and 15 other black Buffalo soldiers went over to the Philippine side to fight for Philippine liberation. And that was syndicated on a number of papers around the country. All of that stuff can be found on my website or on my Facebook page. So I really encourage people to check them out. And maybe some people have checked it out before our next our next time we go on and uh, they'll send us some questions that they want answered.
1: Yeah, I love that. And so I'm going to make sure the links are in the show notes, but just so anyone that's listening, if you're trying to find this right now, Jonathan is uh, no H. So Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, Melrod. Thank you for doing that. (laughs) Yeah. So this sounds great. This was a really interesting first conversation and I'm looking forward to our next. So thank you so much for doing all the information that you're putting out there for everyone to look at. And I can't wait to chat until next time.
0: Thanks so much. You were a great host and I'm looking forward to our next time.
1: Thank you for listening in today. I hope this conversation helped you see a new perspective. As we mentioned a couple times throughout the episode, John will be coming back for a second hit on this. And so in the meantime, I do recommend that you grab his book and take a listen to it. Shoot me any questions that you have and then tune into the next episode TBD to hear more about what his solution-oriented thoughts are regarding the current situations we face. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode connect with diversity on fire on facebook twitter and instagram at diversity on fire if you're enjoying the episode i would very much appreciate a five-star rating and review on apple podcast or wherever you listen that allows feedback and as always until next time don't forget to check your bias and keep the conversations going